Isaiah chapter 55 ended with a glorious announcement of fruitfulness and restoration. And in the midst of all that, God wanted his discouraged people to take strength and to be encouraged. Look at chapter 56, verse 1, where it says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. This prophetic word was directed to God's discouraged people who had slacked in their obedience and righteousness. They saw no reason to repent as long as things looked down, as long as they were discouraged. But God shook them out of this by calling them to keep justice, to do righteousness in anticipation of what he would do. You see, in the midst of the discouraging times of the exile, these times that Isaiah is prophetically speaking to, it was very difficult for the Israelites to, to want to keep on obeying God, to want to keep on serving, and to want to keep on making sacrifices for the Lord. You know, sometimes when it seems like things are dry and your prayers aren't answered and it's difficult, you, you want to give up on giving, making sacrifices or, or, or serving the Lord as much as you could. But God calls them, as it says here, to keep justice and do righteousness. Did you see that there in verse 1? It says, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. Now, the way I usually prefer to do it is to say, Lord, you send your salvation, then I'll keep justice and do righteousness. But here, the Lord is saying, no, you keep justice and do righteousness in anticipation of my salvation, because it's coming. It's kind of like the person who says, Lord, I'll start giving to you when you bless my finances. God says, no, you start giving now and do it in anticipation that God will bless you. The same thing here. My salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. And when we trust God in this way, in anticipation of what he's going to do, look at what he says, verse 2, blessed is the man who does this. There's the inherent blessing of obedience in that. And this promise spreads out. Look at verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. Well, why, why shouldn't these people, why shouldn't the foreigner say, the Lord has separated me from his people? Why not? Because the foreigner should feel separated from God's people, shouldn't he? That's how it was in ancient Israel. I mean, to be a true worshiper of God, you had to be part of the nation of Israel. And if you were a foreigner, you had to immigrate to Israel and, and put yourself under the law. Why shouldn't the foreigner feel separated? Well, why shouldn't the eunuch say in verse 3, here I am, a dry tree? Why not? You see, the eunuch there is cited as an example of an outcast. Eunuchs were denied full participation in temple rituals uh, by the Mosaic law. And God didn't want them to accept their feelings of being cast out. He looks at the foreigner who, who could feel separated from God's people. He looks at the eunuch who could feel an outcast and he says, don't accept those feelings. My word is higher than your feelings. You know, oftentimes when people feel like foreigners or outcasts, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know how that works, right? You walk into a bunch of people and you say, I don't belong here. I don't think they really like me. And then somebody comes up to you and says, Hi, how you doing? And you think, those big phonies. <laughs> or nobody says anything to you and you go, I knew it. What a bunch of cold people. And pretty soon, whatever they do, you know, they do one thing or the other and it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and it can only be in refusing to embrace such feelings and, and choosing to trust in God's promise instead that such feelings are broken. Can I tell you something, friends? If God says you belong, then you belong. You belong to the family of God. If you're a child of God, you belong. Doesn't matter if everybody else wants to make you feel like you don't belong. You've got a higher truth than, than your feelings or their opinions. God's very word says that you belong. 
I mean, if he would extend this to the eunuch and to the foreigner, it's extended to you. Verse 4, he says, For thus says the Lord to, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is God's call to the one who feels like an outcast. You know what he says? He says, walk right. Live in obedience and I'll honor and bless you. I'll give you a place and a name in my house. Please notice what the promise is there in verse 5. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. You know, for many people that isn't good enough. They demand the recognition and the honor of men. That's not what God promised. He said, I'll give you a place and a name in my house. Not before the eyes of the world, but in the secret place before God. For some people, as I said, that's not enough. It isn't enough for them to have a place and a name in the house of the Lord. They need to have a place and a name among men. Now, I'll agree that life is often easier when you have a place and a name among men. When everybody knows you and knows who you are, you've got a place and a name. You know, you, the, the, the movie star doesn't have any trouble getting a nice table at the restaurant, does he? Somehow that, that hotel that you went up to the counter and there were no more rooms left. The celebrity walks in. He's got a place and a name in this world. He gets right in. But friends, we must be able to find contentment with having our place and our name only with God. Because look how great it is. Verse 5 Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. The place and the name we find with God is better than that with among men. It's better than that of sons and daughters. And if you notice here in verse 5, it says, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. A place and a name. God wants you to have that, you know. He wants you to feel like you have a place and a name among his people. That you belong, that he's got a place for you. Notice here, he says, verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yet I will gather to him others beside those who are gathered to him. You see, God says, I'm going to bring the foreigner into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. God's people at that time had slipped into the idea that they were accepted by God no matter what, just because they were descendant from Abraham. And they figured that the foreigners, they were rejected by God no matter what. Here the Lord says, no, you're a foreigner, you're a eunuch. You come after me in obedience, you've got a place in my house. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God wanted his temple, his house, to be a place not only where the Jewish nation would come and worship him, but to be a house of prayer for all nations. Now this uh, principle, or should I say the violation of this principle, made Jesus angry when Jesus came to the temple and found the outer courts, the only place where the Gentiles could come and pray. The Gentiles couldn't come and pray in the inner courts, but they could go to the outer courts and they could pray. It was as close as they, as Gentiles, could come to the house of the Lord. They could come to the outer courts, but when Jesus came and looked at the outer courts, what was it? It was a swap meet. It was a flea market. It was like an auction house going on buying and selling and bartering and trading. And worse than that, they were ripping everybody off. So what did Jesus do? He turned the tables. He drove out the money changers and the sellers of inflated sacrificial animals. And he said, God said that my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you've made it a den of thieves. God will gather the outcasts. You know, gather them together. Now, if this is a promise of salvation for the Gentiles, which it is, 
Now God turns his focus back upon Israel in verse 9 and looks at their irresponsible leaders. Look at it here. He says, all you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. You see, that's a call here. Hey, beasts of the field, come. I got a meal for you. What's this for? Well, I think the prophetic connection, you find it. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 17, where God calls upon all the, the birds of the, of the earth, and he says, come gather at this place where there's going to be a great battle, a place known as Armageddon, and you're going to be able to feed on the dead corpses of the people slain in that battle. Same idea. God's saying, I'm bringing judgment. You better bring a bunch of wild animals to come and eat the corpses that are around after I'm left. Pretty ghastly figure, really. Well, why? Why would God bring this judgment? Look at it here, verse 10. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they're greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way. Every one for his own gain from his own territory. You see, God here is speaking to the leaders of Judah, the leaders of God's people. And he says, you're like my watchmen, but you're blind. What good is a blind watchman? What good is a dog that won't bark? I mean, you got him there to be a guard dog. And what is he? He's dumb. He won't bark when the intruder comes. All he does is lay around and eat your food. Greedy dogs, which never have enough. God says, you're useless. The shepherds who cannot understand, they all look to their own way. Everyone for his own gain. That's the right opposite of what a shepherd should be, right? The shepherd isn't looking for his own gain. He's looking out for the benefit of the flock. Not these unworthy shepherds. Not these blind watchmen, these mute dogs. Look at their attitude as they express it here, putting words into the mouth of these unfaithful leaders. Verse 12, Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today, and much more abundant. You see, worse than just being passively ignorant and blind, they're actively wicked. As judgment approaches, they just drink and get drunk. And how do they say? Look at it. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Their blind faith in progress has replaced a reasoned faith in God. Nobody should count me as a prophet or prognosticator, but I couldn't help but thinking of the stock market when I read this. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Up, 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 up. Wow. On for a great ride, isn't it? That's what people say. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Now, I'm the last one in the world to know all the market forces and things driving and this and that. But I'll tell you what. You're a lot smarter having your trust in God than having your trust in the stock market. I mean, maybe that's where you should have some of your money. You trust God is more reliable than the stock market. And these people have put a blind faith in progress, and that's replaced a reasoned faith in God, and they're ripe for judgment, and they're unprepared for judgment. That's the note here at the end of verse 12. They're just unprepared for the judgment that's to come. Chapter 57 continues on with this exposing of the sin of God's people here, verse 1. The righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. You see, the Lord speaks to the persecution of the righteous. Look at here, the righteous perishes and no man takes it to heart. The righteous were being persecuted and slain in the streets. Nobody cared. It's interesting to note when Isaiah was speaking to, what time. We find out because of the sins that are exposed later on in this chapter, especially the gross idolatry of Israel. We know that Isaiah had to have been speaking to the time before the Babylonian exile. Probably during the reign of Manasseh, when the righteous were persecuted. And when the Bible tells us the streets of Jerusalem were filled with the blood of the righteous. And when they were killed, nobody cared. Who cares? 
this persecution through neglect. Now, God took care of the righteous man. Did you see the end of verse 1? That the righteous is taken away from evil. Isn't that beautiful? And then it says, he shall enter into peace. That's beautiful. God, God's taking care of the righteous. Don't worry about him. But it's a mark of judgment against those who don't care that the righteous are perishing. And he says, verse 3, this extended section, verses 3 through 10, I'll read it all in one unit. It's a, it's a remarkable, almost too vivid description of the idolatry of Israel, likening it unto spiritual adultery. Look at it here, verse 3. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock? Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you've poured a drink offering. You've offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain you've set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their pots and their posts you've set up your remembrance. You have uncovered yourself to those other than me. And you've gone up to them. You've enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You loved their bed. Where you saw their hand, you went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and debased yourself, even to Sheol. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. Notice here, if you go back to verse 3, he speaks and First of all, he makes a startling accusation here. He looks at these corrupt leaders and people of Judah. And he says, you all are sons of sorceresses and offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Can you imagine the hair standing up on the back of the neck of the people? Here's Isaiah reading this in the street. Who are you saying? Who are you to talk about my mother that way? Isaiah says, oh, I'm speaking spiritually. Spiritually, because of the adultery, spiritually, that you've entered into. He goes on in verse 4, he goes, Whom do you ridicule? You see, the wicked among God's people had made fun of the righteous. They mocked them, and God heard it. And here the Lord challenges them. He's simply asking, Who do you think you are? Who are you mocking? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? Look at you all, your origin. And then he goes on and he brings out here, verse 5, inflaming yourself with gods under every green tree. Here the Lord begins to expose the spiritual adultery of his people. They're hot with passion for other gods, worshiping them in the ritual worship places of Canaanite paganism. That is, every green tree, you know, to the Canaanites, an evergreen tree, always green, always fruitful, always green. It was a picture of fertility was always fertile. It never lost its leaves. On the high and lofty mountain, he says later on in the next few verses there, verse 7, on a high and lofty mountain, you've set your bed. In other words, at these high places would be Canaanite places of ritual worship. You see, in this picture, the Lord is the husband of Israel. And their passionate, chronic attraction for idols was like the lust of an adulterer. His people pursued the false gods like a lover runs after the focus of their love and they yield themselves to their idols as a lover yields themselves to the beloved. You notice he says, you have uncovered yourself to those other than me. And so the picture's spiritual adultery here is fitting. It's especially fitting here because many of the pagan gods that the Israelites went after were worshipped, so to speak, with illicit sex rituals. God says, here you are, you're going after it's spiritual adultery. God wants our hearts to be faithful to him. Sometimes we we say, you know, it should be one man, one woman. Amen for that. But you know, we also need to be able to say one man, one God. And not serve other gods. Not have competing gods. Not have gods that we would serve in concert with the Lord our God. This is what Israel did. 
They added on other gods and they would sacrifice for their other gods. Even to the point here, if you notice here in verse 5, it says slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. You see, one of the Canaanite gods the Israelites worshipped was named Molech, and he received children as sacrifices. Molech was worshipped by heating a metal statue representing the god and heating that god until the metal of the statue was red hot, and then they placed a living infant on the outstretched hands of the statue while beating drums drowned out the screams of the child as it burned to death. Molech was one of the lovers God's people forsook the Lord for in their spiritual adultery. Amazing how people sacrifice for an idol, but not for the Lord. Your idol is your career. And you'll sacrifice everything for it, everything. But you won't sacrifice anything for the Lord. Your idol is your popularity, and you'll sacrifice everything for that. But nothing for the Lord. Your, your idol is your addiction, your drug or alcohol addiction, and you'll run yourself into the ground in the pursuit of that addiction. What will you give up for the Lord? There you are. You'll, you'll give up your money. You'll give up your, your life. You'll give up your freedom. You'll go to jail for your addiction. But for the Lord, next to nothing. Isn't it interesting? You, you can always tell what your real God is by what you'll sacrifice for. Show me a man or a woman who, who will sacrifice for their career, for their popularity, for their addiction, for whatever you may have. And they won't sacrifice for the Lord God. You know what their God is. It doesn't matter how much they go to church. What matters is that they'll sacrifice unto their real God. You notice here, it even says here in verse 6, even to them you have poured a drink offering, you have offered a grain offering. These were offerings that should have been given to the Lord. These are the sacrifices that God deserved, but his unfaithful people gave them to the idols instead. Even worse, take a look here at verse 8. It says, also behind the doors and their posts, you've set up your remembrance. You know what this is a picture of? It's a picture of what we call today a mezuzah, something that the, the Jewish people would put on the doorposts of their home. Inside of his little roll of, of the sacred scriptures uh, containing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, where he says, I want your law on the doorposts. God says, you don't put my remembrance on your doorposts. Now you're remembering the idols. But look at it all. If you look at it at the end of it in verse 10, what's the result? You are wearied in the length of your way. See, as time went on, the spiritual adultery of God's people wasn't rewarding. After the initial thrill of it wears off, they're wearied in the length of their way. And isn't that the way it is? You're, again, your idol's your career. You start out for it, and you pursue it, and you make that your idol. And before you know it, the, the glow is worn off it, right? I mean, it's pretty cool at the beginning. Now you're wearied in the way. Same thing happened with your popularity, with your addiction, with your toys. All those idols you set up in your life. When they were bright and shiny and new, boy, it was pretty neat. Now you're wearied in the length of your way. This is the crisis. This is the terrible part at the end of verse 10. Would to God that it said, yet you were wearied in the length of your way and you turned to me. You saw that it was empty and you turned to me, but no, that's not what happens. Yet you did not say there is no hope. That's what you should have said, right? She said, there's no hope in this. There's no hope in this idol, in this career, in this addiction, in this popularity, in this toy. None of those are worthy gods to live for. They said there was no hope. Look at how the Lord deals with his disobedient people, beginning here at verse 11. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you when you cry out. Let the, your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mouth. 
Here the Lord confronts the fact that his people do not fear him and they do fear something else. Look at it there in verse 11. Who have you been afraid of and fear that you've lied and not remembered me? Who are you for? You're not afraid of me, God says. You know, they should have that reverent respect of God. Parents, don't, don't you want it, parents, that your children are, are afraid to blatantly disobey you? I mean, not that they're afraid of you. Not that you walk into the room and they cringe. Maybe sometimes that wouldn't be so bad, but no. <laughs> That's a joke. But you, you don't want them to cringe when you come in the room, but you want them to be afraid to disobey you. You, you want them to be afraid of that. Well, doesn't the Lord want us to have that kind of reverent fear before him? Well, we'd have that fear. The people to whom Isaiah prophesied, they didn't have it. And look at why. This is staggering. Look at it carefully here in verse 11. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me nor taken it to your heart? Why? Now, look at the next line. Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? Why did God's people lack respect for him? In part, it was because he showed mercy and did not punish them immediately. You know, if every time we crossed God's line, he sent a thunderbolt down from heaven and, you know, just juiced us up and, you know, made us writhe on the ground for a while, he'd say, okay, Lord, okay. But, you know, God is rich in mercy, isn't he? He's very rich in mercy. And the people Isaiah spoke to are just like us today and, and made a crucial error. It's common to all humanity. They mistook God's mercy and God's forbearance for weakness or lack of resolve. It's the utter foolishness of the man who stands before God and says, well, if there's a God in heaven, you know, let him strike me right now. And he takes God's, God's mercy, God's forbearance, and he presumes upon mocks God with it. God says, look at it here, verse 12. I'll declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. I say, okay, I'll, God says, I'll bring out all your strong points. I'll bring out all the goods you do. And it won't do you any good. Okay, so your own good works, what will it profit you? Nothing. Okay, well, well you, you can't stand on your own. Maybe one of those idols can help you, right? Maybe Baal, maybe Molech, maybe one of those guys can give you a hand. No, look at them, verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. God says, I'm coming in judgment. Go ahead and hide behind Molech. Let's see what happens. Oh, you want to see how weak they are? Let the wind carry them away. A breath will take them. Now, look at the contrast. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Isn't that beautiful? That's the reward for the person who puts their trust in the Lord. When you put your trust in yourself, God says, I'll declare your righteousness and your works, and they won't profit you. When you put your trust in idols, God says, they'll be blown away with a breath. You put your trust in the Lord, that makes a person secure. So here, Time to get back to the Lord, isn't it? Time to, time to turn back to him. So look at verse 14. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Now, you might be confused, say, heap it up. What? That sounds like putting a stumbling block in the way. No, no. This doesn't describe setting things in the way of people coming to God. Instead, using the same imagery as Isaiah 35 verse 8. It describes a highway for God's people, meaning a raised road that's above all obstacles. The, the picture here is heap up this raised road, build a raised road. And the idea is it's a raised road, a super highway going up above everything, right? The hills and valleys, doesn't matter. God's building a highway above it all. Heap it up, build it so that God's people can come back without any stumbling block, without any obstacle. To take that stumbling block, take that obstacle, whatever gets in the way of our getting right with God, take it out of the way. What are the obstacles? What are the things that keep us from getting right with God? Where's our heart have to be? Look at it here. It begins, verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, 
I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. First thing you want to do, first obstacle you got to get out of your way, is the obstacle, the stumbling block of your misunderstanding of who God is. See, your God's been too small, hasn't he? Look at who he is, verse 15. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That's a big God, isn't it? You see, to be right with God, the first thing to do is to understand his great majesty. The Lord introduces himself to his people with titles reflecting his great majesty, and he expects his people to respond to him as such a glorious God. I mean, when you know that you're coming to a high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, you're not going to mess around, are you? You're going to come with passion, you're going to come with fervor, you're going to come with honesty before the Lord. So, though God is the high and lofty one, though he lives, look at it there, I dwell in the high and holy place. Second thing to understand about God, he says that he dwells with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You see, this is the second thing to being right with God. You've got to be contrite and humble before the God of great majesty. You see, it's just basic theology. There's a glorious majesty, majestic, I should say, high and lofty one in the heavens. And you aren't him, so be contrite and humble before him. That's just, that's simple. I mean, when we misunderstand who God is, when we misunderstand who we are, then those are obstacles to our really coming to God. So here's another aspect to who God is that we need to see here. Verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit which would fail for the spirit would fail before me, and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. You see the third thing to notice here about God? It's there in verse 16. I will not contend forever, he says. The thing to understand about God is his great love. You see, here the Lord shows his mercy to his people, but he promises to relent and not be angry forever. I mean, he disciplined his people, but now he says, I've seen his ways and I will heal him. You understand, God loves you. God wants to bring wholeness and healing into your life. You understand those three things. The glorious majesty of God, the appropriate lowliness and contriteness of man, and then the love of God. Good combination for getting right with God. You can see the result of it here in verse 19. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off, and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. See, in contrast to those who return to God, the wicked are still without peace. God's great mercy is held out to man, but it must be received. Now, continue on into chapter 58, where he talks about the, well, I'd say it's the blessings of true worship. Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did, not, that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, look at verse 2. Look at it there. Oh, this is the appearance of God's people. This is how they look on the outside. This is their image. Look at it. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. 
a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching. God, boy, we want to stand up and applaud. God, bring revival like that to our church, we say. No, no. You see, what you see right here in Isaiah chapter 58, it's all surface. They looked like a people that would take delight in approaching God. But then there's a problem. Look at the problem here in verse 3. Why we have fasted, they say. Or excuse me, why have we fasted, they say. And you have not seen. Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? Here they are parading all their good works, all their image before God. God, look at all we've done for you. You're not seeing. You're not noticing, God. Come on now. Lord, we fasted, but you still don't answer our prayers. And don't you know that we seek you daily and delight to know your ways? We do righteousness. We take delight in approaching you. Yet you don't answer our prayers. Clue you off that something's wrong there, right? Well, the Lord's going to expose what's wrong. Look at the second half of verse 3. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? You see, enough with the image. Now God exposes the reality. The reality was that his people didn't fast with the right heart. They were only doing it as an empty ritual. The reality was, look at it there in verse 3, on the day that they fasted, they still exploited and ripped off their employees. God didn't want their fasting when it wasn't connected with a sincere heart of obedience. Isn't that amazing? Now, as we've heard from this very pulpit, the marvelous benefit and glorious things that fasting can do. The great work that God would want to do in our life through a spiritual principle such as this. But you see, as anybody who would know the subject of fasting biblically would say, is that there's a potential of fasting just superficially. Just going through an outward exercise of things and not doing an inward work of heart before the Lord. That's exactly where Israel was. Concerned with empty ritual, holding it up as a brownie point before God. Look at it here. They say, indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness, it says there in verse 4. They fasted for needs, but for selfish needs. You know what they were fasting for? Lord, help me win this argument. Lord, help me defeat this person. Though their prayer was accompanied with fasting, it was still a selfish, wicked prayer, so God didn't answer. Their purpose for fasting was to glorify themselves. Look at it here. Verse 4, to make your voice heard on high. God says no more. I don't want that kind of fasting. So he asks in verse 5, is it a fast that I have chosen? The kind of fasting God rebukes here is a hollow, empty show without the spiritual substance behind it. It isn't the kind of fast that God has chosen. Now, even though they do all the right things, they bow their heads down, they spread out sackcloth and ashes, God says, I don't even consider it a fast. You see, the people of Isaiah's day had the same problem as the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were trusting in an empty ritual apart from the spiritual reality. Real fasting. Fasting that is partnered with real repentance and a severe, sincere, I should say, devotion towards God. It isn't just about image. Real fasting has great power before God. And we always remember that instance when The disciples couldn't cast out that demon. And Jesus said, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. Source of spiritual power that they were not in connection with. You see, the people in Isaiah's day, even though they went through the outward forms of fasting, for them it was an empty ritual. 
Remember Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the publican? He told how the self-righteous Pharisee, standing before God in all his self-righteousness, made a special point to say, I fast twice a week. Well, again, that empty fasting will do you nothing. See, it wasn't that Isaiah or the Lord were down on fasting. They were down on any empty religious ritual. No, the, the answer isn't to stop fasting. For most of us, we need to bring it into our spiritual lives as a practice. Friends, the answer isn't to stop fasting, but to get right with God and to make your fasting more than superficial. As Jesus said to his people about the empty religious rituals of the Pharisees, this is what he said. He didn't say, don't do those things. He said, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. No. The outward things are good. They're important. But you add the spiritual reality behind them. And he goes on, verse 6. Is this not the fast that I've chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked, that you cover them and not hide yourself from your own flesh? God says, if you want to fast the way that pleases me, Begin with getting right with your brothers and sisters. Stop oppressing others. Reach out to help others. Remember what Jesus said about when you go to to the altar to bring your gift, if you remember that your brother has ought against you, you go and get it right with him first. Same idea here. What did they have to do? First, they had to stop acting wickedly towards others. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the heavy burdens. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Getting right with God begins by stopping the evil that we do towards others. Then what did they have to do? Then they had to start acting lovingly towards others. Share your bread. Cover the naked. Do not hide yourself from your own flesh. Getting right with God continues by doing loving things for other people. What's the promise here? Look at it here, verse 8. This is, this is just flat out glorious. Look at it here, verse 8. This is what happens when you couple... A good practice like fasting with the spiritual reality, not just the superficial thing, but the spiritual reality, says, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he'll say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build up the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Isn't that beautiful? If people would couple their fasting with lives of righteousness and love, then they'd see their prayers answered. They'd have lives full of light, full of healing, full of righteousness, full of the glory of the Lord. Now, if you you call out and God says, here I am. Take away, take away the wickedness. Extend your soul in righteousness. Your light shall be, your light shall shine in the darkness and your darkness will be like the noonday. The repentant God promises blessing. Not only will they have light, but even their darkness will be like the noonday. Beautiful promise here. I love it here. All the promises here in verse 11. The Lord will guide you continually. You see what it takes? It takes more than empty religious rituals. Maybe for some of you, being here tonight is an empty religious ritual. You're here out of some obligation, something, but it's just an empty religious ritual. Until you have the spiritual reality behind it, God's not going to meet you in it. It's got to go beyond the, the surface. It's got to go beyond the empty religious ritual. You can read your Bible and just read the words and it's an empty religious ritual. You can pray. You can fast. You can give. You can attend church. You can preach. It's all just empty. It's all just surfacy. 
God wants there to be a spiritual reality behind it. To those who serve God with sincere hearts and actions, they enjoy the health and the life of soul that's impossible for the superficial follower of God to know. Look at it there, verse 11. Satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. I love what I think it says in the King James, it says, and give fatness to your bones. Man, we want big, fat bones, don't we? Big and strong. Able to bear up a big load. But you see, that, that isn't all. I especially like what it says in verse 12. This continued blessing. Those from among you shall build up the old waste places. This isn't just the bless me club. You, you do these works on the Lord and do them in more than a superficial way. You fast, but not just in the superficial, but in the, in the true way that the Bible describes. You pray, you read your Bible, not just superficially, but really seeking God. And God does more than just give you a membership in the Bless Me Club. Added gloriously to that. God says, I'm going to use you to build up other things. To build up other people, other places. And how there needs to be a rebuilding work today. God give you that title. Don't you want that title? Repairer, Repairer of the Breach. Of the broken place, that's what a breach is. A broken down place, you're the repairer of it. Busted up streets, you're the restorer of streets to dwell in. God wants to use you that way. I think you take a look at verses 11 and 12, or actually 10, 11, and 12. Several characteristics, five, in fact, of a life right with God. First of all, it's an enlightened life. Your light shall shine in the darkness. It's a guided life. The Lord will guide you continually. It's a satisfied life. He'll satisfy your soul in drought. It's a fragrant life, like a watered garden. It's a freshly sustained life, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And it's a productive, healing life. You shall build up the old waste places. Let's wrap it up here with verses 13 and 14. You see, if it was possible to take something as good as fasting and through the depravity of our hearts to turn it into an empty religious ritual, you could do the same thing with just about any practice, such as the Sabbath. Look at verse 13. You turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, the Sabbath was another empty religious observance for the Jewish people of Isaiah's day. God told them to take a delight in the heart and in the purpose of the Sabbath, to honor him, not doing their own ways. And this fits in perfectly with the fulfillment of the Sabbath in light of the finished work of Jesus. We keep the Sabbath when we set aside every day to honor Him. And as it says here, not doing your own ways. Friends, that should be every day for the believer, not just the Sabbath, every day. So the question's asked, are Christians required to keep the Sabbath today? Well, the Bible makes it clear that Christians are not under obligation to serve a Sabbath day. Because Jesus fulfills the purpose and the plan of the Sabbath, of God for us and in us. Galatians chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that Christians are not bound to observe days and months and seasons and years. That the rest we enter into as Christians is something to experience every day, not just one day a week. The rest of knowing that we don't have to work to save ourselves, but our salvation is accomplished in Jesus. See, we have a rest in Jesus. That's the reality. The Sabbath is a shadow of it. But let me say this as well to you. If you would insist on the Sabbath, might I say that you must also insist on a six-day work week? Well, Exodus 20 verse 9 says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And the seventh is the Sabbath. So if we're going to keep the law, let's keep the law. You want to be under the law? There's your six-day work week. And I don't think they were taking off a lot of holidays either. 
You see, when we keep the meaning of the Sabbath, not merely as an empty religious ritual, then you'll delight yourself in the Lord. God will bless us, and we shall delight, not just in the blessings, but look at it here. Verse 14, and you shall delight yourself in the Lord. That's where God wants you to be. Delighting yourself in Him. What in your life really gives you delight? Well, God is good to us and gives us many things that delight us in our lives, doesn't he? Friends, first and foremost, just be the Lord your God. If the idea of delighting in the Lord sounds foreign to you, maybe even a little weird, then you are standing on the border of a glorious country that God wants you to explore, to take in in his name. God has something he wants to show you, how great it is to live life above the superficial level of a walk with the Lord, but a real walk with him, an intimate walk with him. That's delighting yourself in the Lord. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would build that. Father, we pray tonight and we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to delight ourselves in you. Lord Jesus, we move and we we ask for the greatness of your grace to pour out in us. To give us a sense of your great love for us, your tremendous majesty. You're the high and lofty. Father, lead us deeper and deeper after you. And God, as we pursue you in fellowship, in the word, in fasting, in in prayer, God, draw us deeper than the surface level. Draw us into the reality of it, God. This is a word that you've wanted to emphasize with us, Lord, both with last week and this. So we receive it, Lord. We ask that you teach us it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.